Welcome to the Forest FM podcast, episode 142. I'm Killian Vigna. And I'm Zoe Lillil Springer. This week on the show to discuss hairdressing in history, we're joined by Dr. Sean Williams, lecturer in German and European cultural history at the University of Sheffield and a new generation thinker. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, sit back, relax, and join us weekly for all your salon's business and marketing needs. Good morning, Zoe. Good morning, Killian. We're down to our very last, it's all the last ones, right? But we're down to our very last external guest interview this year on Forest FM season three. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad, isn't it? And uh, I think this one's a bit of a treat. It's different. It's, uh, it's certainly different from the usual topics that we cover. I think it comes at a perfect time, like in the lead up to Christmas when everyone's busy, like you don't have the time to learn new techniques and all these kind of things. So a lighter episode, I suppose, uh, touching into the history of of the trade, I think is going to be really, really nice. I think we could call this probably like a reflection episode, reflecting back to the 1800s, reflecting quite far back, not just your year in review that we've covered before. But um, for, for people listening, they're probably thinking, first off, why am I listening to a German and European cultural history lecture on a Salon Owners podcast, right? Well, if you just bear with us for a couple of minutes, we'll explain what's going on here. So Dr. Sean Williams is someone who came to our attention recently from a YouTube video. It was one sent around from one of our product managers, sent pretty much everyone in Forest. We'll play the opening one minute of it in a second to set the scene of the episode. But to put it briefly, Dr. Williams is actually somewhat of an expert on hairdressing, well, not quite as you'd expect. (laughs) He's what we call a new generation thinker on the BBC Radio 3 in the UK. So New Generation Thinkers is an annual competition run by the BBC Radio 3 and the Arts and Humanities Research Council to select researchers at the start of their careers who can turn their fascinating research into stimulating TV and radio programs. And I think our guest today has pretty much nailed that. So, yeah, actually, we've um, if you go into the episode's notes of today, there's quite a few links there that you can uh, listen to Dr. Sean Williams' um, research or, you know, BBC interviews, uh, podcasts, all these different audio clips. But for now, to set the tone for the episode, here's a one minute clip from his YouTube video. I'm Dr. Sean Williams, and I'm writing about the history of the hairdresser and how their role has evolved in society since the 18th century. Above all, I'm interested in the hairdresser as a character of cultural representation, how the hairdresser has been represented on the page in novels such as Pietro Belcampo in E.T.A. Hoffmann's German novel The Devil's Elixir, or on stage, or on screen, and so on. The overarching point of this research is that the hairdresser since the 18th century is consistently represented as somehow an outsider. The hairdresser is highly individualized. And yet, the hairdresser also mediates mainstream fashion trends and what we call master narratives of identity for clients. In other words, the hairdresser embodies both cultural alterity and, in conflict with that, cultural norms as well. So without further ado, here's the man himself, Dr. Sean Williams. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. 
So before we uh, we jump into anything and, and a question in particular, because I do have one burning my lips right now, what would be the, I suppose, one thing this year that you were surprised about in learning um, in the history of hairdressing? Just out of curiosity, just a small thing. Um, I guess it's how similar, actually, the industry has been over time. So I know professionalization is important and training is important, but uh, the industry emerged over 250 years ago as it is today as a hairdressing industry, um, kind of outside of guild structures, formal structures, outside of formal learning, and really took off because of the, the personal charisma and power and creativity of these individuals. And for all the training that's done today, that remains the most important thing about hairdressers is their kind of relationship with their clients and their ability to fuse that with um, sensitivity to style and what their clients want and so on and so forth. So I guess this idea of it being a, a profession that came about in the 18th century, but really quite unprofessionalized compared to others, compared to doctors, say, or teachers or or other kind of professions that came about in precisely the same period. Like, I think in one of your works, you actually initially called them outliers or almost like trailblazers because it never really been a thing. Yeah, that's right. So, of course, like, right back to um, cave people, people had done hair and in art, we kind of see uh, hairstyles and things. So working with hair was nothing new, but... Um, in the period up until the late 18th century, wigs were really in fashion. We think of those really high wigs. And um, and when they kind of reached a tipping point, quite literally, uh, the hairdresser as a sort of modern character that dealt with hair, as opposed to making wigs that wasn't a member of a guild, wasn't a, a sort of formally qualified person or had to do an apprenticeship, came about as a freelancer, really, as like today. And they were seen as an outsider and and the good in that was they were a kind of liberal trailblazer of the new service economy at the time and the negative was that they were often satirized as illegitimate children as non-believers so unreligious as um foreigners as french imports as imposters and all of that because they were kind of breaking into traditional uh lines of work and I'm quite controversial in that. Okay, so if I had to be on who wants to be a millionaire, yeah. I had one lifeline left. It's the million dollar question. And of course, the question is something to do with hairdressing around the 1800s. I think that no one would argue that you'd be the best person to call, right? Especially by the end of this episode, yeah. <laughs> well, even just with the first two answers just there. Yeah. Um, how, how did your interest in learning about the history of the hairdresser came to you and why has it become such a focus? Um, so I guess like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not a hairdresser. I, I'm a cultural historian originally. And I just noticed these hairdressers popping up in sort of fun literature and realized that they were symbolizing something else. And a lot of work has been done on this period, on the kind of beginnings of modern consumer culture, on dentists, on doctors and all these kind of things. But no one had really talked about the hairdresser. And I just realized that there was a good way in to, to telling history through a character that hadn't really been thought of much before. And... Um, 
and yeah and one thing led to another and it just kind of you know how these things start you start telling people you're working on it and other people say oh there's a great text here and then you just sort of start collecting it really and and it's spun out of control <laughs> um yeah so and and i think also now is not the first time that we're doing this back in the time when uh society was so disrupted many writers talked about social changes through precisely these kinds of histories, through histories of wigs, through histories of the beard, as a kind of way to reach new, in those times, middle-class people, but who weren't, you know, of the core of, you know, being to university or whatever, and talk about changes that were going on in society and talk about history. And in some ways, that was kind of what I'm trying to do through the hairdresser as well, is sort of take a an unconventional look through the standard sweep of history that we we often tell it's definitely an interesting one to pick out um so we kind of mentioned at the start of this episode that it's almost like each year we kind of do like a reflection on the year and with this one we're like it's i suppose a reflection back to the roots now you you touched off it at the start of this episode where you were saying that there was a lot going on about wigs and then there was the transition into the profession of the hairdresser and you kind of mentioned something about, um, I suppose it was foreigners coming in. So how did this transition actually play out? Like surely there was people doing hairs bef- prior to wigs and prior to hairdressers themselves. Yeah. So um, firstly, also, I just thought about the millionaire question. I should admit that I'm the world's worst at quizzes. So never, <laughs> <laughs> even if a million quid is not riding on it, you know, don't ring me if you're in a pub quiz. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, uh, but to back to sort of Killian's question about roots and, and puns are, of course, a big part of this story because the, the figure of the hairdresser has often been joked about and often appears as a jokey character, but is also a really fundamental and sensitive character to people's stories and people's life stories as well and and that's one of the interesting things about this history but um what were we talking about wigs so yeah of course people have done hair all the time but the word hairdresser came about in the 18th century so that's the you know sort of late uh period around the time of marie antoinette the french revolution this kind of time the word hairdresser became a term and in German and in French, there were similar words like frisure or coiffure and, and those those kinds of words. Um, and what it was was that people who'd done hair before had either been barbers or in the guilds of barbers along with doctors. They let blood, they pulled teeth and so on, generally for the men. And they had a sort of medical quality or pseudo-medical quality about them. And on the other hand, you had the wig makers. Um, and many people thought these were upstanding, upright members of society. And the German philosopher Kant said, we should all trust the wig maker, but their hairdresser is this kind of unreliable, casual worker we, we shouldn't have any faith in. It was this new upstart. And the hairdresser was this kind of character who wasn't part of guilds, wasn't, didn't need formal qualifications. Often that meant it was a profession that was... Um, more accessible to characters who were not all of them were illegitimate not all of them were immigrants but there was a high proportion of people who were social outsiders who could find a way in to society and kind of made their money and fortune out of it and at this time there were loads of you know we think of the life stories and biographies of celebrities like Vidal Sassoon and people today who 
are a kind of rags to riches story, those same stories were told at the end of the 18th century in multiple volumes called things like The Friseur Who Found Fortune, who, thanks to doing a good job and cutting the hair of the right clients, managed to wangle his way up to be Lord of the Manor. And those kind of things were typical for the time. Wow. Just out of curiosity, how long did it take for wig makers to actually make one wig? Oh, don't ask me specific, Zoe. Um, uh. <laughs> I guess, well, like, how long is a piece of string? I mean, it was a activity that was done as part of, uh, it was a craft with a guild, and so therefore a wig maker had apprentices. And so multiple people were maybe making one wig. And the other thing to say is that it wasn't, they didn't just, what was a wig? Because essentially you wigs were expensive and complicated to make. So you often had one wig that was years, if not decades old, and you would constantly take in for repairs and upgrades and adjustments, right? So, so this wig, I mean, there's lots of funny stories about wigs getting passed from person to person. And precisely at this time when they're going out of fashion, there's a satirical story about a wig that falls from uh, someone, uh, you know, the great and the good of society down to a judge in the legal profession, down to a shoe polisher who uses it to polish shoes um, because they're kind of, they're, they're part of this economy where, um, you know, stuff was expensive, materials were rare, so stuff was reused and refashioned all the time. So I don't know how long it took to make the original wig, but certainly they were at work uh, by multiple people on wigs remaking them all the time and that's also why i think where some of this skepticism of the hairdresser comes in is that like the wig maker was somebody who you had a long-term relationship with you would buy a wig from them and you would go back for repairs often so you were kind of locked into that relationship and whilst you know of late i've been very loyal to my hairdresser i'm afraid to say i wasn't always very loyal and i was quite fickle <laughs> and so you don't always have to go back to the same hairdresser and so therefore they were kind of seen as a fly-by-night character that you know here today gone on to a next town tomorrow and you know goodness knows um who they were having affairs with and who, what they what kind of sidelines they had and, and that was really played up in kind of pantomime fashion so would people have had a quite negative view of hairdressers back then? Um, no, the I think, well, often we satirise what is really significant to us. So this, I think, is one of the problems of working on the history of the hairdresser is that the hairdresser was really important to people at the time and they were confidants often, just like they are today. And they fulfilled many of the same social functions. You could get political gossip from them knowledge you know they they many of their products before the time of sort of formalized science uh, they replaced uh, chemists doctors all kinds of things so they were really crucial but they were somehow popular to make fun of in literature or in opera and so many of the sources that we have are satirical sources and other sources like hairdressers notebooks or client books and so on have often got lost so there are some of them around but a lot of the sources aren't um tell maybe one side of the story more which is kind of ironic because in the clip we just played at the start of this episode from your video 
you actually mentioned that hairdressers kind of they mediate mainstream fashion trends and master narratives of identity. So while we see now that there's a huge, profound respect for the profession, it's just like listening to you talk about how it all started, where they were uh, almost made fun of. Um, from the literature and the work that you've come across, did that respect take long to develop for that profession or that industry? Um, yes and no. So I, I think, I suppose it depends on what kind of respect we talk about. So hairdressing organizations, guilds, um, groups of kind of hairdressers that, that command that social respect come about towards the end of the 19th century. And yeah, they were, it was a good job for somebody to um, secure as an apprentice. And in that kind of late Victorian era, they'd often wear white coats like chemists and so on. So that's a sort of social or formal respect. But I think if you look earlier, there's a huge amount of personal respect or individual respect. And the hairdresser really kind of um, the, the the individual or, or fashion was beginning to boom at this time, mass fashion, if you like. Well, when I say mass, I mean among the middle classes primarily, so small section of society. But this ideal of being a fashionable person and about town if you're um, middle class or upper class. And the hairdresser was sort of symbolized identity and individuality. So they did have a lot of personal respect as, as characters, but as a profession, it was just something that people didn't have a handle on. And and that's kind of like today, if you think of the freelance and even the gig economy, people in these sectors are really important to our personal lives and we will have different attitudes towards them. But society kind of preferences people with formal education or qualifications or or being a member of an industry or a sector um so i think that that formal respect took quite a while that reminds me of my parents when i'm younger ringing through you go to college you get your degree you get your job that was it that was the standard <laughs> set and it just kind of yeah yeah and and that was so I mean, I keep talking about the 80th century because I'm an 80th centuryist, but also it was the time when capitalism or the modern consumer society really began. And that idea took off, like you become a lawyer, say, and you go to university and you study and you, do, you go through your proper sort of rites of passage. And the hairdresser represented the alternative story that you kind of live through being clever, making connections, uh, empathizing with people, uh, thinking on your wits, you making the most of your talents. And that's a different kind of respect. That's a kind of, um, you know, uh, rising up in society on social, I, I don't know what the right word is, cleverness, I would say, rather than sort of knowledge or, or, or some kind of uh, something that's formal. So when did the whole, I suppose, decline of the wig and the guilds slash the uprising of uh, people going more and more to hairdressers happen? And how did that happen? Uh, well, it was part of like a rise in the service sector. So at the end of the 18th century, you had fashion. So um, not only did wigs fall out of fashion, but the final, depending on where you were in Europe, the final rules about what kind of clothes you were allowed to wear for your social rank or so-called um, sumptuary laws 
they fell out of practice as well. And so you had this rise in fashion, generally. Um, in cities, say, you servants began to take on different functions that they would make their money out of. So delivering water to houses, you had water deliverers as, a, as an activity that you could specialize in and make your money from. And hairdressing was part of that. So it was kind of a collapse of a regulated orderly society by social rank and and so on to a more um a more liberal capitalist sort of consumer society and the hairdressers were part of that and then they would go from house to house that this point they didn't really have salons in the way we have them today or in the way they later developed and so i guess you know you had good hairdressers and you had bad ones and you had uh and, and just like any other unregulated industry, really. So in a way, these outliers essentially made, I suppose, the access to fashion and having the luxury of having your hair done more accessible for the everyday person as opposed to just ranked society. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose everyday person was still someone in the town of reasonable wealth. Um but yeah, it was it, it was a they were kind of and they would bring with them to how they were seen as a sort of um, a, as a messenger of fashion as well. So they would bring with them ideas about what was popular in another town or another city or in France if they were um, a French immigrant. When France was seen as the kind of leader of fashion at the time uh, and resented because of that, and you know they would also. Um, it was connected to other things like reading or art or other kind of leisure pursuits that they would know about and they would um, sort of, you know, bring with it. So it was part of an experience, really. And it's funny how we're only just realizing this again today. You know, like people don't just go to their hairdressers for the haircut anymore. A good haircut is now the bare minimum expectation. You hear it in the industry, like it's all about the experience and how it makes you feel before, during and after your appointment. So you touched upon social classes a little bit earlier, and it makes me wonder if the upper class went to wig makers and the upper middle class went to hairdressers and barbers, who did the lower middle class and lower class go to? Um, so initially, you know, a wide range of people could do hair, say servants in houses or family or friends would do hair for each other. Mm -hmm. So the hairdresser is something you paid for and not as getting your standard servant to do it, but someone coming to the house as a hairdresser was something new. And there are lots of cartoons and unease about how expensive they were per hour. They charged per hour often. So the lower classes, I mean, it's then later at the time of like your Sweeney Todd's and stuff where barbering often begins to, as barbers no longer have a a medical um, side to them because they're no longer the barber surgeon um, they become seen as like backstreet characters associated with the working class and so on and, and that their profession becomes a bit tainted and the hairdresser is the sort of glamorous urbanite sort of cosmopolitan side of the barber if you like um, so yeah and it's difficult to say who precisely would uh, use them because just like with luxury products today it comes down a bit to personal choice and some people want to spend their money you know uh, more on material goods and others less so and and it was the same then um, but generally it was kind of part of a, a 
middle classes and upwards sort of social trend and then the barbers diversified and became there's loads of really weird handbooks of barbers diversifying into taxidermy in the victorian period <laughs> and i haven't yet worked out why that is but you know they they kind of found other professions that they could get in on the act of but the consumer experience i think was a really important part of it and and you know that takes a different form sometimes that's because of the sort of almost therapy that you can get from a hairdresser maybe i just tell my hairdresser too much but you know <laughs> the the therapeutic side of uh of hairstyling um and at this time too it was often to do with art like it was seen as hairdressers were often called hair artists as well and there's a sort of aesthetic element to them just like the early department stores as well in the much later often had um you know musical quartets and little mini concerts going on and stuff and and this was seen as part of an artistic experience um which was you know maybe read while you were having your hair done people talked about literature they talked about politics of the day there was discussion of music it was all sort of bound up in the arts more generally yeah i suppose it was less of a need to want to get your hair cut just because it's getting too long or too scraggly and it was more of i want to look good <laughs> yeah and feel good too and i think that kind of feeling and the sense of um you know not just bodily but also physically mentally um you know in terms of attitude to life that kind of thing so from your experience of research and all of this back from the 1800s and then your experience of going to your hair hairstylist who you were saying you're, you're quite loyal to now there's a reason i'm very loyal to her. i feel a bit guilty because you learn you've, you understand yeah. a bit more about the industry now yeah <laughs> well also and um, when i came here i uh, was uh, i it was the day of my job interview and i walked in and i said i've got a job interview my hair really needs cutting please you know if I, it, my job is riding on this and she looked really <laughs> panicked and i said if i get the job i'll come back <laughs> And I got the job, probably not solely because of her haircut, but then I, so this guilt in it as well and loyalty. And I just feel like I put her under a huge amount of pressure when I just walked in. And so now I just go back to her. Well, she seemed to have performed well under pressure. So that's a great <laughs> testament. It's great. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And she keeps asking about, you know, my work, which makes me realize I need to finish it. So, uh, you know, good bit of pressure too. So <laughs> there are many reasons why she's very good for me. So is there any traits that you've seen lost that you'd like to see um, come back? Or that people getting into the trade could actually benefit from? We don't often look at our history enough, I find. Yeah, actually, yeah, because we're so focused on moving towards new, innovative ways. Is there benefits of actually taking a step back and looking at the roots? You're obsessed with that pun. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, I don't even mean it. I, it. I'm genuinely not even meaning it. <laughs> no, I know. I know. It's it's such a good topic for punning. Um, yeah, so I'm not a industry insider, obviously, and I think the industry does many things well, but two things in history that have served hairdressing well, in my view, are one, the fact that it has for so long been outside of many professional um, networks and organizations has emphasized the personal qualities of the hairdresser and kind of creativity and freedom. And whilst professional development is really important and it's good for people to be networked and it improve their skills and so on, capitalizing on that character of the hairdresser is I think something that has uh, a long history. And the other thing is 
that a lot of the positive stories of the hairdresser throughout history have been to do with social mobility and social mixing and different groups coming across each other in the hair salon where they wouldn't usually and that it's important for loads of businesses to have their market sector and their own niche and so on but I do think the hair salon today you get lots of people coming through the doors who are both in character and background and attitude and income very different and I think that is quite without wanting to politicize it too much I think that is a a really nice thing about the hair salon that you maybe don't get so much with um yeah, maybe you do get it with coffee shops, but yeah, a kind of a social space that is talked about quite a lot. I think one thing, and we didn't mention it on the show, this is actually just when we were getting set up on the show, but you were saying the salon environment as we see it now is almost like a safe haven. You were saying there's people from all different backgrounds and cultures coming into this salon. You were saying that you were getting your hair done the other day and you were listening to a, a conversation right next to you that you thought was just so personal, but that person felt so comfortable to actually discuss that in a public environment. You'd never get that anywhere else. No, you wouldn't. And it's kind of bizarre what people will, uh, or what even I, will admit to uh, someone I don't know that well. I see her, you know, once every five weeks, every six weeks. And... Um, and, and in a public setting and in front of a mirror of myself as well. Um, <laughs> but I do think it kind of prompts this um, personal reflection or this kind of a confessional quality about it almost. Um, and I think that's a really nice thing. And it is a really odd thing. But I think in that way, the hairdressing profession is full of tensions like that. It's a public space, but you it's all about the private individual and the personal individual. Um, the hairdresser has been seen at times as being really politically radical and yet they also conform to like fashion norms or ideas and are seen as all too conventional sometimes and they straddle the two and it's a place where all of those kind of ideas about society or culture kind of come out in a in a in an interesting way and i just i really like that and i think it's really um I think regardless of the type of hair salon it is and just despite the the presumed market niche, uh, you still get that that diversity in there of perspective and things like that. I, I tend to go to a barber just because I have short hair and I've always preferred short hair for myself. But interestingly, there is still like the, the hairdressing uh, industry and the barber industry are still quite separate as they would have been back in the days. And I just feel like it's it's a weird one, especially today where we're kind of mixing everything and we've we like to blend influences, how that's still very separate. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, so barbershops have obviously changed with the times too. As you say, they've become more blended. Some of the stereotypes have fallen away. Um, also, you know, it's not the case that you can always just walk into a barbershop as maybe you know the old idea was um but yeah they still somehow occupy different spaces and i don't i'm not quite sure how i would distinguish where is the line between barber and i wonder if it's due to gender norms yeah like you said you've got short hairs so you'll go to a barber's 
where with someone with long hair will go to a hairstylist or an artist. So is it just that men tend to have short hair and women tend to have longer hair without stereotyping? But is that just literally why it's like that? I don't know, because um, like many hairdressers, my own has just moved from kind of men's cut versus female cut to kind of radical short, long, you know, charging by the hair length. Uh, and they cover all hair lengths. So there is some of that. And I think what's interesting, where although barbershops um, blend influences, a lot of the kind of hipster barber style goes back to kind of retro ideas of barbering as distinct from hairdressing in the past. So they kind of are aware of their own traditions. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, there are, there are practical elements, but I do think there is something different in the, at least in the cultural imagination, the ways in which they thought about. Like if you think of the way barbershops uh, appear in films or in plays, they're often, you know, social spaces where there's a line waiting and there are conversations going on. And, the, you know, uh, there's, there's a, there was a great uh, play at the National uh, last year uh, called Barbershop Chronicles, mainly about the African diaspora and the, bar the, man the male barbershop. Even in movies, you'll see people just walking in, or even in the States, I see it more in the States um, than, than over here in Canada, but people just walking in to have a chat with people in the barbershop without waiting to get a haircut, just to have a chat. It's yeah. almost like... I do see that in Dublin. When you walk by, you just have groups of people <laughs> hanging out in barbers. And there's only one or two people actually getting their hair done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you get that You get that with, say, you know, um, black hair salons in films and in literature. And there's been some great... Uh, like Americana was a great novel all about that a couple of years ago. Um, yeah, I do think they're different kind of social spaces. There's definitely some good food for thought in there anyways, yeah. If we were to take it back to your research, where will it be leading you next? Well, I'm trying to finish a book that is a history of really a history of modern consumerism, but told through the hairdresser. Uh, and that does go up to the present day. And needless to say, I haven't finished the latest chapter, so hence my hesitancy. <laughs> so it answers your question, but thank you very much. I'll go back and uh, look at that. Um, that's my homework now. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's a book that I'm finishing, and um, and yeah, that's that's kind of uh, it as a research project. I did some. Uh, stuff on the side with a colleague in Oslo who works on sort of ideas about cancer and cancer cultures and I use some of that work to, to think about the way hairdressers often have unofficial kind of caregiving roles or, or therapeutic roles particularly with with hair loss and, and that was quite an interesting project um, and then then there's kind of plenty other aspects of of this story that aren't about hairdressers but are about other uh, characters of the age that, that are there to be written so i'll probably move on to those lapdog breeders and things like that but um i think with the book that's all i want to say on the hairdresser i think but you never know ask me harder questions and i'll go back and realize how many holes there still are in the story <laughs> <laughs> well listen sean thanks so much for joining us on the show today it's been a pleasure to delve into the history of the hairdresser and how it's definitely come a long way from there. But if there is anyone out there interested in finding out a bit more about your work, where can they follow you or what resources could they find online? 
Um, I have a Twitter handle called at Wiggish History. And if you can wait for the book once it's finished, hopefully early next year, um, maybe it'll all be in that. Keep us posted and we'll uh, publish that as well on our social media networks and all of that. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. It's been a pleasure. Thinking of switching salon software companies, but fear the migration process? How long will it take? What happens to my staff and clients details or my roster? Look, when you sign up for Forest Salon Software, it's our mission to transfer your data from your previous provider smoothly and safely onto your new one, us. Manage, market, and grow your business with Forest Salon Software. Visit forest.com for more details. So that was Dr. Sean Williams, lecturer in German and European cultural history at the University of Sheffield, discussing hairdressing in history around the 1800s. Dr. Williams also presents radio documentaries for BBC Radio 3 as a new generation thinker, and he's written for The Guardian, The Observer, The Economist's 1843 magazine, The Daily Telegraph, History Today, and BBC History magazine, amongst others. His work on the history of the hairdresser has also been featured on UK and Swiss radio, as well as UK television. And before we move into today's Inside Forest segment, I just wanted to repeat that Twitter handle that he gave at the very end of the interview, which is at Wiggish History. And of course, we'll also put the link in today's show notes. Killian, what do we have today on the Inside Forest segment? So we've been talking about the rollout for Forest Academy for some time now, but we're delighted to announce that we're going to be rolling this out for all Forest clients soon. So you can expect to have a Forest Academy account for you and each member of your team throughout December. Um, What is Forest Academy? If you haven't been listening to the end of these shows, Forest Academy is your one-stop education shop. It's a library of bite-sized courses showing you each and every area of your forest system, which means you can do training and get upskilled on each area in your own time on demand. And there's even a mobile app you can download. And best of all, you can download the Forest Academy certificate every time you complete a course. So that's Forest Academy. You can expect to see that rolled out in December and January. Next on this segment, we have the Salon Owners Summit flagship event. The coming edition will be taking place at the Convention Center in Dublin on January 6th, 2020. And the tickets are still on sale, but please do keep in mind that this event is open to forest clients only. To get a call back for tickets, just follow the link in today's episode's notes. And to get the full lineup for the event, head over to salonownerssummit.com. Otherwise, we have the Salon Mentorship Hub, which we're looking at revamping in 2020. So again, if you've used the Mentorship Hub before and had a consultation with a coach or a consultant from the industry and would like to help us make the experience better for future users or yourself, please send us your thoughts and suggestions by email or throw us a DM on social media. Otherwise, the Mentorship Hub is a place to connect. So whatever you're struggling with in the salon, from customer service to finance, we've teamed up with well-known coaches and consultants. And if you head over to Salon Mentor mentors.forest.com you can book yourself in for a free 15 to 30 minute consultation on a topic of your choosing and well that's all we got for this week guys as always if you want to share your thoughts on this episode or have any suggestions send us an email at forestfm at forest.com or leave us a review on apple podcasts we genuinely love feedback and are always looking for ways to improve the show otherwise have a wonderful week and we'll catch you next monday all the best This episode was edited and mixed by Audio Z. Great music makes great moments. Montreal's cutting-edge post-production studio for creative minds looking to have their vision professionally produced and mixed.
Forest FM, the salon owners podcast, is brought to you by Forest Salon Software. We help salon owners get their clients back in more often, spending more, and generating referrals. Let's grow.